away and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses and all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses from the day that the Lord gave the commandment and onward throughout your generations, that if it was done unintentionally, without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering and its drink offering, according to the rule, and one male goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven, because it was a mistake, and they have brought their offering, a food offering to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven, and the stranger who sojourns among them, because the, people, because the whole population was involved in their mistake. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake, when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off, his iniquity shall be on him. Our next reading this morning is from the book of Hebrews. If you flick over to Hebrews chapter 10, um, and we're going to read from verses 19 to 39 of chapter 10. So it's page 1,210 in your church Bible, if you've got one of those. So Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, 
sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Thanks, Corinne. Well, how do you feel about those Bible readings, hey? There are some bits of the Bible that just make you want to stand up and jump for joy. They are not those. Not sure what's going on in your mind now as you think about that, but they're very, it's confronting words, isn't it? Confronting words. One of the most direct and graphic warning passages in the whole Bible. Warnings about the judgment of God. But there's also there one of the most fantastic statements about Christian confidence or boldness anywhere in the Bible. And frankly, I think we find both of them hard to believe. Hard to believe that God would say this. And it's easy for us to be unsettled or worried or even discouraged as we hear those words, I think. But that's not what this part of the Bible was written for. And I think understanding it well will help us to not be discouraged in that same kind of way. So let's pray that God would actually uh, open our minds that we'd understand this part of his word well. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have promised to speak uh, your word to us as we read it together. And so, Father, we pray that you would speak clearly this morning, that you'd use me, that you'd take away all the distractions and fumbling uh, words that I might use that would be unhelpful. Uh, And we pray, Father, you'd take the distractions from all of our minds and help us to hear you well this morning. We pray you'd speak your word to us and encourage us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, keep that uh, part of the Bible open. If you've got it open in front of you, I think you'll find that helpful. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. We have a confidence, a boldness to enter the sanctuary, to enter the most holy place in the world where God himself dwells only on the basis of Jesus' blood. It's unbelievable, isn't it? In fact, I I genuinely think we find this very difficult to believe. And most people who've called themselves Christians through most of church history have found this very difficult to believe, that we could have such a confidence 
based not on anything we've done, but only on the sacrifice of Jesus. I remember as a child, um, we had a relative living with us who, uh, who was an addict and struggling with addiction, and I remember one night um, kind of sitting with him, rocking as he's going through detox, and, uh, and he was calling out to God and saying, God, if you take away this pain, I will go to church every Sunday. If you take away this pain, I'm going to give up the grog forever. If you, if, if, if you take away, this is what I'll do. And he was making a bargain with God. And I don't know if you've heard other people pray prayers like that or you've prayed prayers just like that as well. He said, God, if I do this, will you just... Have ever made a bargain like that with God? Or been tempted to think, if only I get this part of my life right, then I'll be able to come before God and ask this prayer. I don't know if you've ever had uh, someone you've loved really dearly who, who's been quite sick and you've wanted to pray for their healing and you think, but how would God listen to me? What would you have to do for God to be prepared to listen to your prayer? Do you, do you run through your mind there and think, if only I just have these things in place, then God will hear me. It's unbelievable, isn't it? That God would just hear you, not based on anything you've done, but only on the blood of Jesus. Um, as we've been reading through uh, Hebrews, we've been reminded of the Old Testament background where the nation of Israel had one tabernacle and the tabernacle replaced by one temple. And there was one place in the whole world that you could go to offer sacrifices to God. And so wherever you were, you had to go to that one place. And if you, if you wanted to offer sacrifices to have your sins washed away, that you could be with God again, that happened once a year. On the Day of Atonement. So you could go to one place in the world once a year, but you couldn't actually enter the holy place anyway. Because there was only one person in the whole world who could do it in that one place once a year, the high priest. And in order for him to do that, he had to offer sacrifices all day in, the, in preparation for his own sins, for the sins of the whole people, just so that he could enter once, one day in the one place. And isn't it unbelievable to you to think that you could be bold, that you could be confident to walk into the presence of God based on nothing that you have done? But that's what the Bible is saying. That's the confidence that we can have. Over the centuries, as the number of Jewish Christians was kind of outweighed by the number of Gentile Christians, people stopped thinking about the temple and the sacrifice so much. So the stuff that was here in Hebrews wasn't at the front of people's minds anymore. But other things came up. that I, I, Maybe I didn't have to go to the temple, I didn't have to have the high priest, but, but I, I would have to add my good works. Whatever I did that was good, I'd add that to Jesus' sacrifice. And then I could enter his presence or I would I would go through the sacramental system of the church and if I did all of that right then I could enter the presence of God and so over the centuries the ideas morph but the thing that's in common is that every one of them says it's unbelievable that it could just be on the basis of Jesus but I must have to do something 
And what I'm saying to you is that most Christians for most of church history have not been able to believe this truth. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, uh, this from the Roman Catholic Church. And I'm not picking on the Roman Catholic Church. They just have the good taste to put in writing what they actually believe. Uh, and so way back in the 16th century, when the Protestant Reformation happened, Martin Luther, Calvin, these guys, the Roman Catholic Church called a council called um, the Council of Trent, or was known as Vatican I. Oh, it's now known as Vatican I. It wasn't known as Vatican I at the start. You know, they never called World War I, World War I, till there was, yeah, World War II. So anyway, the Council of Trent um, made a number of declarations about exactly this. And you can see on the screen one, I'll, I'll try and do it in a little bit um, better English, but this is the official Roman Catholic English translation of the Latin in which it was written. Um, if anyone says that by faith alone the sinful person can be made right with God, so as to mean that nothing else is required for them to cooperate in obtaining the grace of justification, of being made right with God, and that it is not in any way necessary that the person be prepared or disposed by a movement of their own will, let anyone who says that be anathema, which means let them be cursed before God. Here's another one. This is Article 24. If anyone says that the justice received, that is the just received uh, by God, that you are made right with God, is preserved and also increased before God, uh, uh, sorry, is not preserved and increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits or the signs of justification already obtained, but not a cause of the increase of it, let them be anathema. You see, and uh, I'm, I'm not picking on the Roman Catholic Church because I'm saying to you, I think this is what most Christians throughout most of church history believe, that you must add your good works that you must do the right things and add that to the blood of Jesus, otherwise you'll be cursed by God. And in the Bible it says that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus and that alone, through the curtain, not of the temple, that is his body, that and it's unbelievable, isn't it? It's unbelievably good news that you right now can have confidence to stand before the God of the universe despite anything you've done, despite whatever you are ashamed of, whatever you feel guilty of, if you will just trust in Jesus. That is the unbelievable good news. Do you get that? I mean, do you believe that? Do you believe the unbelievably good news? We're going to come back uh, to what we do with that uh, in verses 23 to 25 at the end, and I'll, I'll talk about what we do with that belief. What, what happens next? We'll talk about that a bit later. First, though, let me move on to verse 20, uh, 26 to 31 uh, and talk a little bit about the unbelievable warning that he's given there as well. 
Now, I say unbelievable because, again, so many people, and I think so many people who call themselves Christians, who week by week go to church, find what this part of the Bible says completely unbelievable as well. It's a very common habit in the world um, at the moment to talk about the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, right? As if they're two separate gods. And the, the God of the New Testament is the God of love, he's the God of mercy, he's the God who welcomes everybody in. And the God of the Old Testament is what? The God of punishment. Angry. The God of judgment. Happy's over here. <laughs> Sad, happy. Angry, happy. But... Hebrews is the book of the Bible that deals more closely than any other book with the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament and how this one God is the same God. Listen again, Hebrews 10.26. This is the God of the New Covenant, the God of that unbelievably good news. For if we go on sinning deliberately after we've received a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. For anyone who sets aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The living God never changes. And this part of the Bible, it, it, it's not hard to understand, but it is hard to believe, isn't it? It's awful. And I think we need to be very careful about who we think this part of the Bible is speaking to. Who is this warning for? Who is this word of judgment for? Who's the one whose vengeance, uh, who vengeance belongs to? It's the living God. Who will judge his people? It's the living God. Those verses are both quotes uh, from Deuteronomy, from the Old Testament, uh, just like that first Bible reading we have from Numbers, same kind of period of time. But that God is the same God and Father of the Lord Jesus. God doesn't change. God is the same. His standards are the same. Which makes the unbelievably good news even more unbelievably good, doesn't it? But what about this warning? See, in fact, as you think about what this says about the old and the new covenants, what's clear is that somebody who deliberately keeps on sinning after they know the truth after they know the truth about Jesus, they are more deserving of judgment than a person who deliberately went on sinning after they knew the law of Moses. In that first reading, it talked about sinning with a high hand, which is 
kind of strange old-fashioned way of saying deliberately, boldly, knowingly. I'm conscious as I talk about this serious warning, and this is about the, the most serious warning that there is anywhere in the Bible. As I talk about this, I'm conscious that hearing this warning is like taking blood pressure medication. I have lots of friends on blood pressure medication. That's one of the things about getting older. All your friends talk about their health complaints and stuff. Uh, lots of friends on blood... Most of my friends who are on blood pressure medication... I'm going to get that wrong before the end. Blood pressure medication are on medication to lower their blood pressure, right? But I've actually got a few friends who are on blood pressure medication to raise their blood pressure. They're both kinds of blood pressure medication. And you, you know the issue, don't you? <laughs> you better give the right kind of medication to the right person because the wrong medication taken by the wrong person will kill them. And so it is with warnings of judgment that we need to know who this is addressed to in order to rightly apply the Word of God. We know what it says, but who is it saying it to? That's actually the most important bit to get right. There are some of us in the room here today who, when you heard that warning, you were gripped with fear with terror. And if this is you, in your mind you might be thinking, I've tried. I've tried my best. I keep trying. I've tried, I keep my trying and I keep falling over. And there may even be a particular sin that you keep falling into. And it's a habit that you can't shake. And every time you stumble, you're gripped with guilt and shame and fear at the judgment to come. If that is you, I want you to listen carefully to what the Bible says. You heard it already, but listen again. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his own, through his own flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You are not the person the writer is describing in the warning. If you have a conscience that's racked with guilt and shame, Know the confidence that you can have to enter the holy places by means of the blood of Jesus. You've got a soft heart and you need to be reminded of the good news. There are other people, though, who maybe aren't racked by guilt and shame like that at all. If this is you, you hear the gospel, you know the gospel, you know about being saved by faith, you know about all that Jesus did and you are banking on that being fine. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard the, um, the old ditty, um, saved by grace, what a happy condition, sin all you want, there's always remission. You heard that? No, good. Um, 
Wipe it out of your mind. You don't want to ever think about that again. It's not as if you say, um, you know, the old jokes about uh, the Catholic priest who turns up, to, uh, somebody turns up to confession with him and says, um, I've, I've been drunk, I've been sleeping around, I've been uh, dealing with illicit drugs. And the priest says, when did this happen? He said, later tonight, but I just thought I'd get in. <laughs> not, not that. Right? It's not saying I'm going to presume on the grace of God. I know all about that and I think it'll be fine. I think it doesn't matter. That's the person with the hard heart. And this warning is for that person. This warning is for the person who is spurning the blood of Jesus. What scares me most about people who talk about the difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is I wonder why are you talking about that difference? What is it that you want God to be different about? Why does God need to change for you? And often the thing that I really worry about is that people want a God who doesn't judge so they can do whatever they want. That's the real motivation, that I can do whatever I want. Hebrews 10.26, if we go on sinning deliberately after we've received a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the average. This is a warning for those who deliberately go on sinning. This is not accidental, it's not a one-off, it's a settled disposition or attitude to sin that says it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter and therefore the blood of Jesus doesn't actually matter. The blood of Jesus is ordinary, or in the words in the ESV, the blood of Jesus is profane, meaningless, ordinary. We can often think about sin as a kind of list of good things you're supposed to do and a list of bad things you're not supposed to do. Don't do the bad things, do do the good things, that's what sin... Okay, that's all right, but at its heart, sin is a rejection of God. It's a rebellion against God. And this is a, a warning written to people who've heard the good news, but actually want to rebel against what God has said. It's a warning for those hard-hearted people who know the truth, but choose to live in rebellion, as if it didn't matter. You can, verse 29 it talks about trampling the Son of God underfoot, treating this precious blood as if it was worthless, ordinary, profane, insulting the Spirit of grace, taking grace for granted as if it was a nothing, as if we could pretend to God that we were actually sorry, that we genuinely wanted to change when we had no intention at all. I know of a few people, friends of mine, who have actually consciously and dramatically made a choice like that. Consciously chosen to live in open rebellion against God. So it doesn't matter, I'll be forgiven, it'll be all right. A few. Only a few. If that was you, on a cold, rainy morning, you wouldn't have come this morning. <laughs> you most likely wouldn't have come. Why would you? 
There's a much bigger category, though, and it's a, it's a category of people that I think are the primary audience of Hebrews who need to hear this, even though it's not directed to them. And they're people, I think, who might be a lot like us. It's people with perhaps clogging arteries rather than a soft or a hard heart. You see what I've tried to do with the imagery? I'm sorry about this. It doesn't say clogging arteries anywhere in the text. I'm just making this up. But it's people who've not made a bold, hard-hearted decision. But they're, in the language of Hebrews, just drifting. Just drifting. That's the risk. The risk is drinking. Or in the language of the parable of the seeds, it's the ground where the seeds grow up and the weeds grow up alongside and the cares and worries of the world grow up and choke the good plant. We can tell that as we read on. Verse 32. So what's he saying to the people who are actually reading the letter? But recall the former days... When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those who were in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has given you a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You've made such a good start, he says, don't throw it away. Don't drift away. um, uh, He's saying don't throw away your confidence, the same word that's right there in the start, all about the good news. Since you have this confidence or boldness to enter the sanctuary, he says, don't give it up, don't walk away. Don't dismiss that. Remember how you started. Don't you love hearing stories about uh, as people become Christian? I don't know if you've heard many stories like this, but I love hearing those beginning stories. I love hearing stories about the difference that it made and what it was like in the early days. I I mean, I've heard many of your stories uh, because I love hearing this kind of thing. I ask you over morning tea, how did you become a Christian? What was it like? Uh, and I know here we've got many people who had stories that began as they were quite young. They, they grew up knowing the Lord Jesus. And, and great, what a wonderful beginning. I, I, yeah, I, I would love my kids to have a testimony where they can never remember the, the day, they, a day they didn't believe Jesus. I, I'm, I'm so joyful. that That's a good start, right? Some people here had a good start in youth group. And it was as they were young and part of a youth fellowship and they come alive and they talk about those days and those are the great days and you remember that. And I know for many people here, it was university and people talk about the influence of the ministry around them when they're at university and I'm going to hark back to those days. Remember that, that, that enthusiastic beginning where you're right into it and everything was going on. And the writer of the Hebrews is saying to the people who are reading his letter, remember what it was like. When you started, when you said, but people would insult you and you'd go, oh, I don't care. You visit the people in jail, all these good things. Remember that great beginning. What a wonderful thing. I started reading a, um, a book that just came out this week, um, an American book called The Great Dechurching. 
It's a book that's written on the back of um, uh, research that interviewed 7,000 people in America who'd stopped going to church over the last 10 years. 7,000 people. It was trying to work out what's going on. It's a massive cultural shift. Why do people stop going to church? For some of them, there, there are stories of these dramatic decisions. And for some of them, there's been real pain in the churches, some abuse and things where there's been a really dramatic moment. But they're the rare stories. The overwhelming bulk of stories are completely unspectacular. The overwhelming bulk of stories is about people who just drifted away. Just like the writer of Hebrews is warning about. The drift. They slipped out of the habit. They slipped out of the habit, firstly, of going to church. Because, well, there are so many time pressures or conflicts. And if there's kids sport on and you have to choose between, or if there's no free time through the week, this is your one chance to have a sleep in, and, and, and you, you, so you just make that choice a couple of times. No other time to meet friends, so you choose to do it on a Sunday instead of coming to church. Or you, if you travel on the weekends, you're going to be away, so you make that choice a couple of times. And, and what these stories kept saying over and over again is that once you've made that choice, when you come back to church the next week, people say, oh, where were you? And you make up some excuse, you then feel guilty for not having a good enough excuse and so you don't want to have that conversation again so it makes it harder to come back and so you, you just slowly slip out of the habit. And what happens is not only does that become easier but you start to feel that that is right. And only after that do you then develop the story about why you stopped coming which might say something about a contemporary event or something about a bit of theology or something about it. But actually, the whole thing was just a slow drip. It's, it's the death by a thousand paper cuts. You, you can never pin down exactly when it happened, but it's just one choice or a set of choices and a habit that came and you drifted away. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews, all those centuries ago was warning his hearers about as well. You made such a good start, he said. Don't throw it away. Don't forget. Press on. Endure. Persevere. Stick with it. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, verse 35, which is of great has a great reward. For if you... Uh, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their soul. Do you notice at the end there, that the writer's actually positive, he's optimistic. He says, yeah, but you're not like that. You're not like that. You're not going to shrink away. You'll keep going. I'm confident of better things in your case. And he said that before as well. 
And so he says it here, and I'm confident of better things in your case as well. So all this hard stuff. But how do you stay strong to the end? How do you ensure you don't drift away? Let me take you back up to the start of the passage. There's three commands here that I skipped over. Of course, you noticed that, and we're going to ask questions later about why I skipped over the most important. We'll go back. Three commands. They're there from verse 22. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold to the confession of our hope. Let us be concerned for one another. Um, Firstly, Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with, uh, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near to God. I remember the summer of 1981. I remember the summer particularly because of Megan Brewster. Smooth skin, blonde hair. I'd known her since kindergarten. And in the summer of 1981, after weeks of thinking about it, I asked her to be my girlfriend. My very first girlfriend. Now, if you've had any experience of 10-year-olds starting to, <laughs> to date one another, uh, that changed our relationship entirely, right? Because up until then, we chatted, freely joked every day. As soon as we started going out, we stopped talking to one another and we completely didn't know what to do. And after two weeks, we decided to break up. Uh, so that's my first experience. Uh, What I'm saying to you is don't be like that with God. (laughs) Don't establish a relationship and use it and then not talk. See what he says? Draw near. You have confidence. You can come into the very presence of God. He's saying do it. Make sure you do it. How do you draw near? Pray. Anytime, any place. Heavenly Father... You can come right into the presence of God. And what he's saying is, do it. How are you going with that? Are you making use of this enormous privilege to actually draw near to God? Or are you aware of it and behaving like a 10-year-old who just got a new girlfriend or boyfriend? Draw near to God with confidence. He loves to hear us pray. He loves to answer our prayers. Draw near to Him. That's the first thing. Secondly, verse 23, let us hold on firmly to the confession of our... Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. The confession of our hope is is not saying, let's be hopeful. It's not saying that. It's not saying, hold on to your hope. We hold on to the hope we have confessed or spoken. We hold on to the truth about that. We hold on to the essence of that. It is holding on to the thing that drives your hope. He's saying, hold fast to that. Because God is faithful. He will not let you down. So your hope is sure because it rests on the faithfulness of God. 
So hang on tight. Don't give up the source of your hope. Jesus has promised he will hear us when we ask. He's promised that he'll be with us forever. And he is faithful. He always keeps his promises. Hold on to him. And lastly, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to, good, uh, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's a concern for one another. It would be easy perhaps to read the first half um, of these two commands as if there was something that you could do on your own, like the image that I've put up. You've got to hang on. You've got to endure. Focus on it. It's you. I don't think that is true of the first two commands. It certainly cannot possibly be true of the third one. Here's a better image. If you want to guard yourself against clogging arteries, against drifting away, against the danger of drifting away or ignoring or rejecting the salvation of Jesus, you need to do this together with other Christian people. Do you have to go to church to be a Christian? Well, I get, I get annoyed by that question. Do you have to go to Well, no, you don't, you know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. I know that. There are hamburgers in other places. Yeah, I know. It's all okay. But honestly, if you want to stay a Christian, stay with Christians. Have fellowship. Do it together. This thing of enduring, this marathon race, is, a, is one you're meant to run with other people. If it is at all possible, gather, be together to be encouraged. Head with people who are heading in the same direction. It's a bit like hot coals. I don't know if anyone's got a Weber. Uh, you know, Weber, you light the coals and you put them in a big mound and whatever. And they'll go for hours, right? If you want to put them out, what do you have to do? You tip a whole lot of water on them, sand. How else can you put them out? Just separate them. Just separate them and in about 20 minutes they'll, they'll go out. Together they last hours. Separate, the coals die. I think the same thing happens with Christians. We are meant to be together. If you try and live as a Christian person but do not commit to being in fellowship with other Christian people... It's so much harder. We are part of God's great gift to one another. This is the means he's given us of staying on fire, staying on track. That's the story of the great de-churching, isn't it? It's not that people lost faith and stopped going to church. They stopped going to church and then walked away from God. It happened that way around. So what are we to do when we get together? Two things. First, promote love and good works. Um, this is not some kind of advertising campaign. Uh, uh, the word they you know, use there for uh, 
uh, promote or provoke. Or, um, it's the same word as spur, uh, to spur one another on. Anyone here got a set of spurs? No? A bit too close to the city, really, aren't we? <laughs> Uh, you know what spurs are, though? They, they, they go on your, on your riding boots and they're a jagged bit of metal and uh, you, that's what you kick the horse with. We are to spur one another on. To lo- it's a good image, isn't it? We are to provoke one another. We are to push one another, to irritate one another toward love and good deeds. It's uncomfortable to do this. It's easier to never have uncomfortable conversations. It's easier to just ask about the weather. Probably going to rain. Bit colder than last week. Mm. Enjoy your coffee and go. It's much harder to spur one another on to love and good deeds. These are the conversations that go beyond the nice. The conversations where you love one another enough to say uncomfortable things. To have that difficult conversation where you say to a brother or sister, I heard what you just said and I don't think that was a really loving thing to say. I'm concerned about that. I saw what you did and I'm, I'm not sure. It's much easier to just get annoyed and talk about them behind their back. But that doesn't spur anyone to love and good deeds. To actually have the conversation, say, what's going on there? To say to the brother or sister, can you come and do this good thing with me? There's a good thing that needs doing, can you help me? That's a costly conversation. Let's make this change. I know it'll be harder. I know this might be more work for you. Will you come and help me do this? It's a good conversation. Will you hang in here together with me? They're good conversations. You spur one another on to love and good deeds. Could you ring that person this week? It's a great thing for us to do. Tied closely to the second uh, way in which um, we, we ought to work together to encourage one another. Uh, in the end, this is why going to church is important. You can pray at home, you can sing at home, you can read the Bible at home, you can even listen to sermons at home, but you cannot encourage another person without actually speaking to them, being with them. That's why we come. It's for one another, to encourage one another. Um, it's not what's in it for me, it's how can I serve and encourage other people. To encourage other people, you need to turn up and speak up. I want to give you a couple of examples of how you can turn up and speak up. Uh, we can encourage people who serve us or who we notice that they do something that's great by speaking up, by just saying, hey, thank you so much for reading the Bible, for praying, for helping lead the kids' ministry, for welcoming us so well on the door, for making sure that Simon with his croaky voice could be heard, you're running the sound system or you're doing the slow. Thank you. Turn up, speak up. 
what an encouragement it is to be thanked by other people when you do something. Um, can I say to it's no accident that the people who turn up and speak up are the ones who actually get more out of church. Um, if, if you come expecting to be a consumer, church will always be unsatisfying for you. It doesn't matter which church you go, soon enough it'll be unsatisfying as well. But the ones who turn up and serve end up actually being the most content and satisfied as well. How else can you do it? What about encouraging those who maybe haven't yet stepped up? Um, who maybe could do something? We're saying, you know what, I reckon you could do that. Do you think you could give that a try? Could, could you go on the morning tea roster? Um, could you help us with the welcoming? Uh, could you help us at the working bee or at the garden? Can, could you help us? We can spur one another on by turning up and saying something. It's awkward to have that conversation, but we can say thank you, and then we can say, gee, I'd love to see you try this. That, that's encouraging, giving people a bit more courage. We can encourage the lonely and the downhearted, the stressed out and the anxious, the overwhelmed, the overwrought, by just turning up and speaking. Do you know, so often... Um, People are lying in hospital and, and nobody comes to visit. Or people are sitting at home having just lost a loved one and nobody comes. And, uh, and I talked about, why didn't you go? I, I didn't know what to say. Well, if you're not sure if you can turn up and speak up, at least just turn up. It's okay if you don't know what to say. Most times when people are going through something really hard, don't leave them isolated. Turn up. Be with them, even if you're just going to sit there. Make them a cup of tea. You don't know what to say? That's okay. That's all right. But please don't make the decision to not turn up because you're not sure what to say. Just turn up. I think we can also encourage those that we notice aren't with us from time to time. There's lots of different ways of doing this. You know, how do you chase up the people who didn't come to see? So you're all right, right? And as you look around, you notice who's not here this morning. What's the conversation you have? Where were you? We actually, aren't we missing people this morning? I mean, I, I don't just mean, are there empty seats? I mean, don't you miss the fact that, we, that there are some people who we haven't got fellowship with this morning? Did you ever tell them that you missed them? They say, I missed you on Sunday. Is everything okay? Did you have a good weekend away? If you're away, that's great. Did you have something to celebrate with your family that we missed out? Love to be part of that. That's wonderful. That's great. I, there's all kinds of reasons people are not here. We can be encouraging to those who don't come by just being interested, curious. Loving them. Say, hey, is there something I can do for you? Is everything okay? Is there something we could do to make it easier for you to come? It's much easier to sit there and cast judgment or do nothing. It takes real love to encourage the other person. And I think that's what we're being urged onto here. And if you're not sure of anything else, that you could possibly do or say. 
Go back to point one and think about this unbelievably great salvation. We will encourage one another more than anything else by continually pointing one another back to Jesus, to the great salvation, to the relationship that he's won for us, that we can with confidence come before the God of the universe without fear because of the work of Jesus. The power, the privilege of prayer, the better and lasting possessions that he's promised us, the hope of glory. If we want to survive or even thrive as Christians, we do that by doing it together. You know, Margie and I have been coming to church here for one year and two weeks. It's awesome. We love being here. We're so encouraged by you week by week. Um, It's a joy to get to know so many new people as well as deepen the relationships with people that we already know. And there's lots of little ways that I have been encouraged by you because you just took time over a cup of tea, coffee, to be curious, to be loving. Let's keep spurring one another on to love and good deeds week by week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray by your grace and mercy that we would not be those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who believe and are saved. Father, we pray that you would guide and guard our fellowship, that we would spur one another on week by week and day by day to love and good deeds, that we would love those who are difficult to love as well as those who are easy to love, that we'd be prepared to have uncomfortable conversations, that we would weep with one another and rejoice with one another, that we would bear with one another and that we would spur one another on all the more until Jesus returns. We pray it in his name. Amen.